Greetings and welcome back to Seminary Unboxed. This is Dr. Matt Ayers, your host of Seminary Unboxed and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. And today we continue on our study on the Holy Spirit, or at least a, a summaries of the chapters of my recent book that came out called On the Holy Spirit, an Introduction. And so uh, today what I want to talk about is sort of the methodological background to or basis for this study on the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're answering this question. There's two chapters on this topic. Uh, the question is, where are we getting our information on the Holy Spirit and how do we know it's reliable and trustworthy? So um, there's two answers to that question. Uh, one is the Bible and the other is the historic witness of the Christian faith that is enshrined in the seven ecumenical creeds and councils of the early church. And so um, that's the answer to the question, where are we going to get our information about the Holy Spirit? The Bible, number one, and church doctrine, number two, but with an asterisk by that church doctrine, because not all church doctrine, uh, specifically the first seven ecumenical councils of the early church. So what I want to do first is talk about the Bible and my assumptions of the Bible. Before I even talk about how do I interpret passages about the Holy Spirit in scriptures, we try to answer questions like, is he divine or is he God? Is he a person? Um, what is the nature of his relationship to Jesus? What is his na the nature of his relationship to God the Father? Uh, what is it exactly that he does in the life of the church? What is it he does in the life of the believer? Um, all those things. Before we even look to the passages of Scripture, we know that there is a spectrum um, of, of different positions on Scripture itself. And I want to make clear what I believe about Scripture as I approach the Scriptures looking for answers about the Holy Spirit as he has revealed himself in the Scriptures. And so there's a few points I just want to make. This won't take very long. Uh, number one is I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all the scriptures are God-breathed. And that verb, breathed, breathed out by God, um, means that it originates from God. God is the originator of scripture. Without God, we wouldn't have the scriptures. Now, this might sound obvious to some listeners, but to other listeners, it might not be as obvious. Because there are some uh, that hold the conviction, and I believe wrongly so, that the Bible is merely a human document that has no divine element to it. That it is written by uh, strictly humans throughout history. And they're witness of things that they've experienced or seen or, uh, or anything else. You know, the list is endless of what that position holds of what the scripture actually is. But I believe that the Bible is, in fact, God-breathed, that we wouldn't have it without divine inspiration. Um, now, without getting into the details of some of the mechanics of the human role of the scriptures being God-breathed, um, I will say that um, the history of the church has understand the Bible, has understood the Bible as being a lot like Jesus, in the sense that Jesus is fully God and fully man in right Christology. Um, the declaration has uh, the same declaration has been made with regard to the scriptures themselves, that they are fully divine, yet with full human participation as well. Uh, not to say that they're, they're divine and that we worship the Bible. We certainly don't worship the Bible. Um, uh, bibliolatry, I think, is the word for that, worship of scripture. We're not talking about the Bible as being divine in the sense that we worship it, but that it originates from God. Um, so God spoke through human authors. Um, now, 
<clears throat> there's lots of other qualifications that, that we could make, but the nature of this book and this project, the Holy Spirit Introduction, is to be an accessible, balanced, layperson uh, book, a book for the average Christian, not for a scholar. So um, I'm not going to get into all the details um, and the, the exceptions and deeper clarifications of what this means. So let's say for now, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the scripture is God-breathed, meaning it originates from God. It wouldn't exist if it weren't for God. Uh, and therefore, we believe that. Now, one of the questions that comes into play is, why do we believe that declaration? Because the Quran says that it's inspired by God as well. Uh, the, the works of Joseph Smith of Mormonism says it's inspired by God as well. Um, and we can look to other traditions that would, that would uh, assert or declare that their sacred texts are also divinely inspired. Well, why do we believe what the Bible says and not what the Quran says? Why do we accept the scriptures, the Christian scriptures as divinely inspired, but not, as, uh, but not uh, the Quran, for example? And, and that's a, that is a deep, deep question. And uh, I will point to two answers to that question for now. Um, and again, this is a question that scholars continue to debate over. It's a, it's a epistemological question. How do we know? How can we affirm that this is actually a divine document? Well, there's two things that the church has pointed to um, to say this is why we believe the Bible is what it says it is as a divine document. The first is that it has the, uh, the backing of a historical witness of a community. Uh, that it's not just one man in a cave who received this divine revelation, but rather many people who witnessed the divine revelation, and that the recording of that divine revelation of God's works in, work in history has included uh, a community in the process of its recording over time. Again, not just one person by themselves without additional community witness, which would characterize the Quran, for example. But the Bible has uh, witnesses saying, no, this is what we experienced and how we experienced it. Um, now, I could flag up an issue, a, a rebuttal to that, that argument, and that would be, well, aren't you uh, drawing that conclusion based off of the Bible itself? And isn't that, therefore, a circular argument? And that is, in fact, a, tr a, a, good, a good question that needs answered. Uh, but again, at the level which we're dealing with the content of this book, we don't need to try to answer that question here and now. So, historical community witness. Um, the resurrection of Jesus um, is another piece of this, of why I believe and Christians throughout history have believed that the scriptures are true and unique and set apart and uh, divinely inspired, because there's no other uh, person in the history that is resurrected to go on to live an everlasting life, like the person of Jesus. Yes, Lazarus was resurrected, others raised from the dead at Jesus' resurrection, uh, but uh, none of them continue to live until today, right? And so Jesus is unique in that category. And so um, I believe, along with the greater witness of the church, that that resurrection reality sets the Christian tradition apart and the historical witness to um, the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is in a category by himself. There's no one else that falls in that category. And the document that uh, records that event must be in a category by itself as it declares that it is uniquely and divinely inspired. Now, once again, we have the same rebuttal of, well, aren't you uh, basing those conclusions the conclusions about Jesus' resurrection off of the scriptures, and therefore saying, if the scriptures say it, then I believe it's true, and his resurrection affirms that, and the scriptures are, is what's telling me about the resurrection. In other words, what if um, the Quran talked about the resurrection of, of uh, Muhammad, for example? Then couldn't you make the same argument for the Quran? And, and that is a valid, uh, a valid uh, question. It is a bit of a circular argument, but again, without getting into the details. So how do we, what, what's another reason that we accept the Bible at face value? 
Um, <clears throat> and this is where the Holy Spirit comes into play, because there's an inherent, so not just a historical witness, right? And that there's a, a historical witness of a community affirming that these events took place, that, that, that we accept and believe, and not just the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus spoke about in the scriptures. But also, also there is an inherent witness in our hearts from the Holy Spirit that attests to the inspiration of the scriptures. Now, I understand. So in other words, when we read it, there's something inside of us that says it is true, it is divinely inspired. Um, and isn't, isn't that declaration also quite relative? Like, how does one objectively, it's a very subjective declaration. Haven't people said the same about the pearl of great price, for example? I know that it is the true inspired word of God because something inside of me attests to it. And, uh, and so, yes, I do believe that is a subjective declaration and relative. Um, however, uh, and the early church, um, and I agree with this, this, I affirm this, this understanding, the early church looked at the church itself as a strong piece of evidence for the affirmation of the reality. In other words, um, you don't just have one person over a short period of time who said, I believe this document is inspired. You have billions of people over 2,000 years who have had a harmonized witness to that reality. And that in and of itself is a historical thing that we can look at. So, in other words, one of the greatest objective evidences to the truth of Christianity that Christians can point to is the existence of the church. You can't deny that the church exists, and it has existed, it, it has stood the test of time, and it has been unified in its, in its belief on the essentials of Christian faith and doctrine. So, it's not just one dude standing out by himself, or maybe a hundred dudes, or a thousand dudes, it's billions of people over thousands of years who have shared the same witness that there is something divine, inspired by the divine Holy Spirit in our hearts, that confesses the divine inspiration of this text. So, all right, we're a little bit in the weeds here on this. So let me let me kind of zoom out. We're talking about the characteristics of Scripture, what I believe about Scripture in terms of how I approach it to draw conclusions about who the Holy Spirit is. And the first thing I believe is that it's inspired, inspired by God, a divine document because of 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, so if it's inspired, it also must have the authority of God. If it comes from God, if God is the originator of the text, then disobeying the scripture is synonymous with disobeying God himself. And that's what we mean by the authority of the text. Now, let me pause for a moment as I'm talking about this first characteristic of the scriptures, uh, inspiration and authority together, uh, and talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in this. So we understand from scripture that as we say that God the Father inspires the reading, or the writing, excuse me, of the Bible, we understand from Scripture as well that the Holy Spirit is the key agent who inspires the writing of the human authors. So the Holy Spirit is essential in this. That we can, here's another way of putting it. Since the Holy Spirit has an essential role in the writing of the Bible, we can trust that what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit is true and accurate because it's from him. He had a role in writing it. He is the breath of God that carries forth the word of God, as it were. So, inspired and authoritative. So, when we say that the Bible is inspired and authoritative, what does that bring to bear on a study of the Holy Spirit? It means that what we believe the Bible says about the Holy Spirit is authoritative. 
and that rejecting or denying or refuting what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit is the same as rejecting, denying, or refuting what God himself says about the Holy Spirit. We also believe that because it is of divine origin, that this is not a human, merely a human understanding of the Holy Spirit, but rather it is a divinely inspired human understanding of the Holy Spirit. It's God's perspective, not merely man's perspective on the Holy Spirit. So because of the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, we trust that what is revealed in the Scripture about the Holy Spirit is directly from God himself and has a divine origin. So, um, hard to say, but anyone who refutes, let's say, the divine personhood of the Holy Spirit, which is plainly revealed in scriptures, in the scriptures as God's divinely revealed word, um, is denying God himself when you deny what the scriptures say about the Holy Spirit. So groups that would reject, let's say, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, take Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they don't just reject the, the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, they're refuting what God himself says, which is an open rebellion against him. Right. So, okay. So, inspiration and authority. <clears throat> Let's go to the next point, which is um, what I like to call inerrancy. Some like to call infallibility. In the book, it's called infallibility. I prefer the word inerrancy. There's a huge debate around this word inerrancy. Um, <coughs> excuse me, for a different time and a different day. Uh, but what essentially the the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture says is that because God is the the originator of the text, that God inspired the writing of this word. And God is omniscient, what the Bible tells us. He knows all things. And the Bible also tells us in Titus that God doesn't lie. So if he knows all things and he doesn't lie, that if there's a, should there be a falsehood in the scriptures, then God is either not omniscient, which the Bible refutes, or is lying to us, which the Bible also refutes. Therefore, the scriptures is a divinely inspired text cannot contain any falsehoods. It does not affirm anything that that conforms to that which is true. So, in short, a much easier way of saying this is that the Bible is trustworthy and reliable in its teaching. Now, I will say as a footnote, where the rub comes is the question of teaching in what. So, you could say, for example, the sun doesn't rise from a scientific perspective, right? The sun doesn't rise the earth goes around the sun, and that gives the appearance of the earth rising. And so when the Bible says that as the sun rises from the east, that's technically a falsehood. It's not true, right? And so therefore refuting this notion of inerrancy. Well, there's a qualification when we say it is trustworthy and reliable, right? Uh, trustworthy and reliable as it's intended to be as the genre of theological text. So the Bible, in other words, the Bible is not a science book. It's not teaching us about the specifics of physics. It's not teaching us about astronomy. It's teaching about, it's God's self-revealed truth in everyday language, not specifically scientific language, right? So <clears throat> that's where this debate really launches off into some weeds. And so when I'm talking about inerrancy, for the sake of uh, the audience that we're engaging here in this book, we're saying that the Bible is trustworthy and reliable in all that it affirms in terms of God's self-revelation in regular, everyday language. So, what does that tell us about the Holy Spirit? 
Well, that tells us, because of the doctrine of the inerrancy or infallibility of Scripture, it tells us that what we find in the Bible about the Holy Spirit is trustworthy and reliable. We don't have to question it. We don't have to doubt it. Now, we can question it. We can doubt it. But because of our convictions about the inspiration of Scripture, we don't have to question and doubt it. We can, we can believe and trust that it's true. Now, I will say that a part of affirming the trustworthiness and the inspiration of Scripture is the work of the Holy Spirit himself, right? We're able to affirm the truthfulness of the Scriptures and what it reveals about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit himself is witnessing in our hearts that it is trustworthy and true. One cannot be on board with the doctrine of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture without the witness, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And that's an interesting dynamic at play that we can consider as well. So, number one, the Bible's inspired and therefore authoritative, and because it's inspired and authoritative, it is therefore trustworthy in its teaching. And so, what we read about the Holy Spirit in the Bible, we can trust it. So, next, after inerrancy or infallibility, is the sufficiency of Scripture. <clears throat> this is Psalm 19, Psalm 119, the affirmation that what the Bible teaches us is sufficient for our salvation. Notice, for our salvation is the absolute key qualifier here not sufficient for fixing your car, instructions for fixing your, your Toyota. It's not sufficient for understanding, you know, quantum physics. We just talked about the example of the sun and the earth going around the sun. It is sufficient for, our under, for us to be saved. It doesn't lack anything. And here we find the commands don't add to or take away from the scriptures. We find this in Deuteronomy. We find this also in the book of Revelation. Those who add to the scriptures require more than what God requires for salvation. And those who take away from the scriptures are preventing people from being saved. So, the sufficiency of scripture, because it's God-inspired and God-breathed and entirely trustworthy, it is sufficient for our salvation. Everything we know to be restored to a loving relationship with Jesus Christ by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the basis of grace is in the scriptures. So, what does the doctrine of the sufficiency of scriptures bring to bear on our study of the Holy Spirit? Well, because the scriptures are sufficient, we know that the Bible has everything required for us to understand and have a working knowledge of and to be acquainted with and to be intimate with the Holy Spirit. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to add to it. Now, one could say, well, doesn't your, doesn't your book add to it? <laughs> can I just read the Bible? Absolutely, you can read the Bible. You don't need my book to be saved. One does not need my book uh, to be introduced to the Holy Spirit. Just as, uh, and, and we can make the argument not just about my book, but any uh, theological religious literature. Uh, the book is an attempt to, re to, in a succinct way and in a clear way, uh, distill the teachings of Scripture in order to present them to someone in a way uh, that uh, is the result and the fruit of a study that I've done. So it shortens the road. I always encourage people to go back to the Scriptures. In fact, so much of the book is the quotation and the citation of Scripture. So, the sufficiency of Scripture. Because the Scriptures are sufficient, we have everything we need to know about salvation and about the Holy Spirit. So, inerrancy, excuse me, inspiration and authority together. Inerrancy, sufficiency. Let's go to um, the clarity of the Scriptures. The message of the text is clear to those who read it seeking to love and obey God. It's also known as the simplicity of Scripture. The Bible teaches us to teach the Bible to our children. It also says that the scriptures can be used to make wise the simple. Well, if children can understand it 
and simple people can understand it, then its message must be clear, not hard, simple. Now, there's a key aspect here. There's two, actually two key aspects, because you could go, well, isn't the Bible really hard to understand? I, I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's all, always simple and clear. And there's a couple different answers to that. One is, the message of the text is clear, remember the definition, of those who read it with the help of the Holy Spirit seeking to love and obey God. So the text is only clear to us when we have the Holy Spirit helping us to interpret it. We learn in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is symbolized by fire, and fire illuminates. And the Holy Spirit illuminates our sin, he illuminates our understanding of God, but he also illuminates the meaning of the Scriptures to us. The one who inspired the writing of the text also inspires the reading of the text. We'll find that when we're walking in harmony and step and in open obedience and love with God, that the meaning of the text opens up to us. We're seeking, we're reading the Bible, seeking to love and obey God, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us as the helper to help us understand its meaning, and its clarity becomes apparent. Now, um, one could say, well, why do Christians disagree on so many things that the Bible says then, if it's true that the message of the text is clear? Well, there's a couple things that we could say to that. The main thing that we say to that is that the message of the text is clear on all things essential for salvation. And then you could say, well, isn't all of the Bible essential for salvation? Didn't you just talk about the sufficiency of the Bible? Yes. Um, but remember, there's a distinction between what we call dogma, doctrines, and beliefs. There are things that we must be unified on as Christians that the Bible plainly reveals. Things such as the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, um, things such as uh, the, Jesus is fully God and fully man, so on and so forth. And this is where the ecumenical councils come in, is the affirmation, the universal acceptance of these things. And there are other things that are less clear that aren't essential for salvation, but yet important for us to live a life that is wholly obedient to God. Things like women in ministry, things like eschatological beliefs. Are you a premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial? How do you understand the book of Revelation and eschatology? Uh, the baptism of babies versus the baptism of believers, so on and so forth. All these things are what we call the non-essentials. Doesn't mean they're not important, but not essential for salvation. The essentials are the Apostles' Creed and the other first seven, the other first seven ecumenical councils which really just deal with the personhood of Jesus Christ and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, you can't deny that Jesus is God and be saved. Now, again, I realize that um, there's so much more we could get into with this, and, and I'm giving more than what the book offers, because the book, again, is an introduction to the Holy Spirit. And so, coming back to the basic premise of the clarity of Scripture, that on all the things that are essential, uh, the message of the text is clear. Um, for those who read it with the help of the Holy Spirit, seeking to love and obey God. Now, what does this mean about our study of the Holy Spirit? It means that what we need to know about the Holy Spirit is clear. It's not ambiguous. We're not going to come away going, well, it's okay if some believe that the Holy Spirit's not a divine person and other Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is a divine person because the, the text isn't really clear. Absolutely not because of the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. He has plainly revealed the reality that he is a divine person in Scripture. And we go through that later on in the book. So, what the Scripture reveals about the Holy Spirit is inspired from God himself and therefore authoritative. It is trustworthy, inerrancy. It is sufficient. We don't need to add to it. And it is clear. We can understand it. And we can agree on what it re reveals about the Holy Spirit. Okay. So there's one more. Um, so we've dealt with inspiration, uh, inerrancy, 
sufficiency, clarity, and now the unity of the scriptures. The scriptures are unified in its message. It's not self-contradicting. And this is because, and again, this all stems from the inspiration of God. It says God has a single mind, the doctrine of the simplicity of God, the unity of God. Yes, one God, three persons, unity with distinction, but all three persons are perichoretic. They're mutually indwelling. They're part of one another, and they share the same will, right? They don't have diverging wills. God is not schizophrenic. Even though we believe in the distinction, the three-personhood distinction of God, um, we believe that they are perfectly unified in, uh, as one deity. So um, that means that the text itself is going to be unified. You're not going to find, in other words, a teaching of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that's going to contradict the teaching of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. That would deny the unity of God and the unity of Scripture, and it would deny the inspiration of the Scriptures. There is a perfect coherence across the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, um, in its teaching, specifically on its teaching on the Holy Spirit. So those are my convictions, and I will say they're not just Matt Ayers' convictions. These are the convictions of the believing, confessing church since its founding. Now, there are variations of those convictions in the details and in the weeds but we're not dealing the details in the weeds. Like some would refute um, some of the definition of inerrancy and so on and so forth. But they do agree, those who believe that the text is inspired by God, that it is trustworthy. The, the fundamental premise of inerrancy is the trustworthy of, of, of the teaching, that we don't have to question whether or not it's trustworthy and what it reveals about God. Um, so, um, so there's our convictions. Inspiration, authority, um, inerrancy, uh, sufficiency, clarity, and unity of Scripture, which means, in conclusion, that what the Scripture reveals to us about the Holy Spirit, as we seek to understand the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, is from God himself and therefore authoritative, and we, we, we should not refute it, number one. Number two, <clears throat> that it's trustworthy, that we can trust what the Scriptures tell us about the Holy Spirit, because it is from God, and God is all-knowing and doesn't lie to us. Number three, it is sufficient. What we learn about the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, we don't have to add to or take away from the Scriptures. Everything that's there is sufficient for us to be in a, 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 perfect, a perfectly obedient relationship and understanding of the Holy Spirit. Number four, it is clear what the Bible reveals, what God reveals about himself in Scripture regarding the Holy Spirit. The essentials is going to be clear, and therefore we will have unity of agreement and what it teaches, for example, on the divine personhood of the Holy Spirit. And finally, um, there is the unity of the scriptures. It will not be self-contradicting, uh, which of course stems from the clarity. It wouldn't be clear at all, would it, if the Bible was self-contradicting on what it revealed about the Holy Spirit. And so those are our convictions as we study the Holy Spirit with regard to the Bible being our source. Um, so we're going to talk more later on when we get into the study of the Holy Spirit about the Holy Spirit's role in Revelation as the illuminating, illuminating fire. Um, and this is um, a doctrine that is directly connected to our bibliology, that is our understanding and belief about Scripture. All right, so in our next session, we're going to talk about looking to church doctrine and tradition as a source for understanding the Holy Spirit as well. So you'll want to stay tuned for that one. Um, that was, yeah, you'll want to stay tuned for that one. So until next time, this is Matt Ayers with Seminary Unboxed, your host and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Seminary Unboxed is the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we train and develop trusted leaders for faithful churches.